I think the best way for us to start um, this art and theology of imperfect parenting is with scripture. So I'm going to ask uh, Matt and Amy to come up and help me and read just a portion of the texts that are in your bulletin. Be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Thank you, guys. Okay, so that's it. So we've got some passages about um, pain and suffering and perseverance, so clearly traditional Mother's Day texts. <laughs> um, to give you a little backdrop on this, you know, I'm a, I'm a mom um, of two great adult daughters, and I'm a, a grandmother of the two most perfect granddaughters in the world, um, and I'm as sentimental as the next girl. I'll cry at a you know, phone commercial if it's good enough. Um, but here's my other life. What I've done for the last 25 years is to work with kids who've been abused and the people who love them and try to help them recover from that. So I, I work currently with Royal Family Kids, and we, find, we, make, we, we create camps, clubs, and mentors for abused kids and train them. We've got about 7,000 kids that come from the foster care system into our, our camps every summer, and we mentor about 10% of those during the school year. Um, and before that, I used to find foster and adoptive homes for some of these kids. So my parenting experience is broader than my own and has brought me far deeper, fr- frankly, into my own faith. And, and I think even if you're here and you're not a mom, not a dad, um, maybe won't be, or it's far in your past, I, I think it's important because parenting creates, and we see this through scripture, such an important paradigm for what faith is all about. And it brings us, as every mother knows, you don't understand trust and faith and terror and how frightening the world is until you have a child in a very real way. It makes you just aware of, of your own vulnerability. And that vulnerability can do some, some strange things to us, and we can try to protect in ways we probably can't, right? Because the truth is every mother to some degree becomes somewhat a vehicle of suffering for her child, um, whether she wants to be or not. I'm thinking of one story of a mom who came into her son's room early on one Monday morning and said, darling, honey, you gotta, you got to get up. It's, you're going to be late for school. You've got to get up. And her son sat up in bed and looked at her and said, Mom, I don't want to go. The, the teachers don't like me. The kids call me names. Why do I have to go? And in that way that really only mothers have, she responded and said, Because, darling, you're 59 years old and you're the principal. But the truth is, we, you know, we all have that desire to protect from pain, but it, it's necessary for us to cope with the realities that this is a difficult life, right? And, and, and mothers have to get over that if they're going to be good parents. And, and you all know, of course, that we've got a library now of books ever since Sigmund Freud's put pen to paper um, about how bad parenting can traumatize children, about all the things, about how childhood trauma can follow you for the rest of your life, about all the statistics. You know, and it's, it's terrifying, right? It's, it's oppressive. You get parents that are so anxious that we now have the helicopter style of parenting, right? Where, where you, it's kind of like that 
story I just told in a, in a non-humorous way. There's a, a teacher in our congregation who had the mother of a third grader come to her and say, I have to do his homework. He cries if he doesn't get A's. You know, really not clear on the concept. Um, so we've got this, this pressure to be a perfect parent, and it comes out of some understanding of what we call post-traumatic stress. And certainly there is, like I said, a great body of work that attests to the fact that these, some of these childhood wounds do pain us for a great, uh, for a long time. You got, nope, it just went away. What, did, what happened, Ed? Okay, let's hold on. Let's try this. We're back. Okay. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. Okay. Um, so we try to be, we, we try to be perfect, and, and we worry about this post-traumatic stress. And we all, we've all heard the stories of the soldiers that have come back having been traumatized, some of them very young when they've gone over into combat zones and they're more prone for mental illness and so forth. What is exciting, and I think what parallels the passages that we just read in Scripture, is that there's also a phenomenon that's even stronger called post-traumatic growth. And that's the truth that, as we, as we heard from both James and Peter, Sometimes people come out of stress and they're stronger. In fact, the studies are are rather remarkable. One study, 61% of the prisoners of war in Vietnam came away emotionally stronger than they had been before if if they had had an experience in prison where they were, of course, tortured. And this is very interesting. The more severe their treatment, the more emotional growth they showed. So we we have the post-traumatic stress, which is very real. So, and we don't have everybody responding that way, but we have a significant number of people who come away stronger. And I think exploring, well, what makes the difference spiritually is one of the key factors in our, not only our parenting, but in our own Christian lives. There's a woman named Rhonda Corbin, um, who was a major during the first war with Iraq, who's sort of a poster child for post-traumatic growth. She was piloting a, a helicopter, the rescue group, and they were shot down, and five of the crew of eight immediately died. She was one of the survivors. Her arms and legs were broken. She was sexually assaulted. She was imprisoned. Um, She came away from that, arrived back, obviously, a war hero, worked her way up to being brigadier general. She has said about the horrible experience, which, of course, she did not want and would not want to repeat, it made me a better soldier. It made me a better leader. It made me a better doctor. She's a surgeon. It made me a better spouse, it made me a better daughter, it made me a better parent. And she said it gave me new priorities. For example, I never, ever miss my daughter's soccer games. Um, And she also said, interestingly, that after that incident, for the first time, she began to cope with the, the fact that there was a spiritual life as well as a physical life. So we do find that folks come away from these horrendous experiences, and they say this this made a positive impact on my life. And I, and I think that's significant and an important way to take to set it alongside these verses. And they're not all combat victims. In fact, they have a, a new website, Authentic Happiness website, and they've discovered that people who report truly awful life events, you know, we're talking kidnapping, we're talking rape, we're talking, you know, uh, being in a homicide, really awful life events. If, they've had, if you've had one, you have more emotion, you show more emotional growth than those who report none. Those who have reported two had more emotional growth than those who reported one. We're talking majority. We're not talking everybody. Those who have reported three more than those who reported two. Um, overall, again, it's not a guarantee, and you also have people who are traumatized in negative ways. But this is sort of significant. Now, here's the deal, though. What about kids? What about kids? What about those who are the most tender 
and the most vulnerable because my friends, terrible thing, this is not a safe world. And we all know that. And hard things can happen to little kids. So one of the, well, the, the question for me that has really driven my own spiritual journey over the last 25 years is, God, where are you when it hurts? Where are you when, when, when kids are hurt? Um, can we trust you with our children? I've had to go back to scripture, and I believe that there are rich answers to be found, but I want you to help me. In walking through a typical, typical case study, it's a very old case study, but I think all of the elements are present in the foster care kids that I see today, um, and it will help us kind of work through this. Now, I know, um, and I want you to help me identify risk factors. Now, I realize that this is a Presbyterian congregation, okay? Um, I just want you to pretend you're Pentecostal, a little Pentecostal, just for one day. It's Mother's Day. Humor me. So I'm going to ask you some questions and, and ask you to, to give me a, some responses. All right, here's the scenario. This three-year-old boy is placed by his mother with a foster caregiver. All right, so it's a, what we call a voluntary placement. We have kids in foster care today who are voluntary placements. Um, they're, they're a minority, but they're there. Now, what would be good about a voluntary placement as opposed to other ways to, that you get ended up in foster care? This is the hard part, guys. This is the I can't speak on Presbyterian moment. Uh, anybody got an idea? What would be good about having mom place you in foster care as opposed to going in normally? Yes? Placement before abuse. Yeah, maybe that maybe this is a wise mother who says, "I know this is not a safe situation for this child." Now, um, and also, it's the lack of trauma because honestly, the way most kids get into foster care is is really scary, and and it's the placement as much as the initial abuse that can be traumatic. Uh, I remember one of my friends who has adopted several foster kids, and she said her two one two of her sons talked for years about when they were arrested. Um, and they were three and four at the time that, that the police showed up at their home. There was somebody, there was a vicious beating going on, and for their own safety, they were removed and put in the back of the cop car and driven away. Well, they watched TV, so they knew that's what you do with the bad guys. Um, actually, in California, up until maybe 15 years ago, um, with adolescents, they actually handcuffed them when they took them into custody. So in any case, though, even when you don't, kids have a really immediate sense of, I did something wrong, and they took me away. They don't think, oh, you saved me, necessarily. So, so there are some good and, and bad things. There are some tough things about voluntary placement, but some good things. What's one of the toughest things, though, about a voluntary placement where mom makes the decision? Abandonment, Abandonment rejection. You can't, you can't get out of the fact that it was her decision. Okay, so that's one of the factors that this child is going to deal with. Secondly, now the birth parents in this case have family visitation, but it is only once a year. What's good about that? Some connection to birth parents. That's good. What's bad about that? Once a year. We're talking a three-year-old. Well, it's only once a year. It's like a third of the kid's life, you know? It's like it's almost close to never. It's just enough to kind of keep the fantasy alive, but not enough to have a real relationship, right? Also could be enough to keep you from bonding to the foster caregiver, right? I saw that, I saw that a lot with foster families where the fantasy that mom would someday come back, even though mom had never made me a peanut butter sandwich, um, would come back and make my life wonderful, could keep you from bonding with the very real family that was there trying to commit to you. Okay, so that's one of the factors. Uh, and by the way, this is not unusual. The, in our camps every year, we have lots of kids who haven't seen their, anybody in their family for over a year. Okay, now this is another part of the scenario. The birth mom gives birth to five more children. She keeps all of them at home 
except that oldest one in foster care. Any uh, traumatic factors here? Yes. Yeah? <laughs> you think? <laughs> okay, so, so here's the deal. This is, again, not unusual. Whenever I talk to my camp volunteers, they always have kids in their cabins where they were the only one um, that was in foster care and the sibs were at home. Lots of reasons. Sometimes they're different dads. Dad doesn't want that guy's kids with him. Sometimes this is the kid who told. Sometimes this is the kid that's the most difficult. But always, what does the child think? It's my fault. You know, what, what has he got that I ain't got? You know, what has she got that I don't have? How come I don't make the, I don't make the cut? How come she can raise five kids but not me? All right, so that's one of the issues. Let me tell you how this can burn in a child's mind. A little boy I'll call Brian was brought into um, to therapy with his foster sister. She was not a relative. She, he was 11. She was 7. They, they brought the children in because there was uh, extreme sexual, constant, chronic sexual acting out. The mother, foster mother was at her wit's end. The therapist, of course, immediately assumed that the 11-year-old Brian was the perpetrator and began to interview them with that in mind. And the foster mother said, no, 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 wait, wait, no. It's the, seven, it's the little girl. She had been molested in a prior home, and she's the instigator. Um, and when they interviewed Brian... He was a classic victim. He was crying, tearful. He said, I, I have to do what she says or she won't play with me. Now, if you've ever met any 11-year-old boys, the threat of a 7-year-old girl not playing with them, not really high on the level of you know, influence. But this is Brian's backstory. When he was 4 years old, his mom brought him into an agency. She was holding her newborn son on her shoulder. And looking at the caseworker who had been trying to follow the family, she said, I'll keep this one, you can have this one, and shoved him across. For the, so Brian is already triggered to try to keep relationship with abusive females so that he won't be rejected again. And he's going to need some help to get beyond that kind of negative response. So that's the kind of thing that can happen. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about the caregiver with whom this little boy's been placed. All right? The caregiver is elderly, pushing 80, legally blind, and obese. Any risk factors here? Be obvious. Won't be there very long. Won't be there very long? Well, you know, obviously, you know, three-year-old boys don't get less active (laughs) as they get older. And I've got to say a couple things. There are over a million American children being raised primarily by their grandparents. And God bless those people. And they're keeping kids out of the system. I was just in Africa where, of course, a whole generation in some villages has been wiped out by AIDS. And there are grannies there taking seven and eight and nine kids, and they have very little to share with them. So, again, God bless them. But there are difficulties with doing it, particularly at this level of, of age. And, and being legally blind, I, I've helped deaf people become excellent foster parents um, through a special program that we, that we had with Deaf Ministries. But again, disabilities do make it harder for, for a, a parent um, to deal with a very active little boy. i um, give you an illustration. A little boy I'll call Kevin. Friends of mine, um, they, they got to get Kevin into their home when he was 11 months old. He'd only been in one foster home, which was good. Um, but he was with a woman who was in her late 60s, and she had six babies in the home. She was licensed for six. Um, she only kept them as babies until they got too active. She would have cribs and playpins and just keep them there and never took them outside. 
ever, you know. So he had never felt grass on his feet. He'd never even gone to a grocery store before Don and Cindy took him in. And I'm happy to tell you he's now in college and he's an athlete and he's doing fine. But the other issue was that she also kept them out of the adoption pool during their most adoptable time of life. Um, so there are issues when we look at this kind of caregiving situation that we're seeing in, in this, uh, for this child. All right, now here's the, the good news. The foster, this foster parent's caregiver is an experienced parent. The foster caregiver has raised two adult um, sons. However, they, uh, both men are known in the community for fraud, theft, and the sexual abuse or harassment of women employees. Do you see any risk factors here? Here. I mean, experience. Yeah? Now, who's going to outweigh who? This is a blink thing, you know? So we see any, do you see any risk factors here? Poor parenting. Poor parenting. Background, your experience is in poor parenting. And we've got, what about role modeling? You've got role modeling that's really poor. Okay, what about the sexual harassment? This is of adults. And this is a child. So is there any danger to a child in the situation where you've got adults known for harassment and abuse? You've got somebody who's not really good with boundaries. Okay, so right away, there's higher risk for the kids. All right. And in addition, these abusive birth sons work in the family business with the child's foster parent, and the extended family sees each other regularly. Okay, so if you were hoping that they were like on the other side of the country. That's not true in this particular case study. Um, recently, a couple years ago, I had a little girl in, in our Illinois camp, and the, the folks, rural family people, really wanted to mentor her. She just seemed like a sad little girl. She was young. She was six. But the grandma just would not get the paperwork done, you know, and they tried and tried, and finally, mentor director contacts the caseworker and goes, you know, what will I do? She says, oh, Grandma can't read. She's not going to finish the paperwork. You've got to go around the corner to Aunt Jane because Aunt Jane fills out the paperwork for her. So, great. And then she says, oh, wait, wait, by the way, don't ever leave Susie. Well, don't ever leave Susie with Aunt Jane because she's married to a registered sex offender. Um, so then the mentoring director said, you know, we came back. We've been praying about this little kid, but then we came back and prayed with new understanding of the depths of difficulty within that family system in which we were trying to mentor this child. And that's the kind of dense situation that we've got here. Now, let me just ask you another question. Which factor do you as a group think is more ominous? That original abandonment and the, the fact that mom is raising other kids and the, the, that rejection... How many of you think that part of the equation is the hardest on that child? In terms of post-traumatic stress. Some? Okay. How many of you think it's the foster care situation in a dysfunctional home? That's right. And all those of you are chicken to vote, if they're all right because it's, it's all stress is stress, risk factors are risk factors, one upon the other. They all, they all have um, a cumulative effect. All right. Um, now, if you leave a child in this situation till they're 18, what would you anticipate the child would, how would you expect the child would grow up and do? Angry? What? Repeat the, repeat the cycle of abuse, quite, quite possibly. You know that um, a majority, well, large portions of the prison population currently are graduates of the foster care system. Um, one of not our, our, our greatest uh, sense of outcome that we have. Actually, in, in New York, within four years, graduates of the foster care system, a majority, um, there's a large percentage, I think 30% are homeless, 60% of the girls have given birth, um, 
an extraordinary number of the kids have already been arrested. So, so we know that, that the system in general is traumatizing, and certainly this kid has um, a lot of this kind of trauma about them. Now, here's the thing. How many this is, is as I said, a rather old study. It's very well published. Um, anybody recognize it? Have any, I won't call on you, but did anybody recognize it? Okay. Yes, you do. This is the story of Samuel, who became the greatest leader of his people, who changes the trajectory of Israel. Um, It's just that we talked about it in terms of contemporary terms, but these stories are there in the Bible for a reason. They're here to give us hope. Let me just walk you through what happens to Samuel. The voluntary foster care placement is recorded in 1 Samuel, and I'll have my readers come help me with this. Amy? Samuel 1, 24-28. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as it was, along with a three-year-old boy, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord of Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. Okay. So you remember this story if you went to Sunday school. This is the story that we do here at Mother's Day. This is the beautiful story of Hannah. This is the story of a woman um, driven to tears and, and agony to pray for a child and blessed with a, with a child that she said, if you give me this child, I will give him back. The difference is I've just flipped it because you've always, we've always looked at it from the miracle to Hannah. We haven't ever looked at it from what did that feel like for the child and what was that situation like. Um, it's all true. It's just that it's important to our faith to really take a deeper look at some of these stories. Now, what about the comment about the birth parenting having family visitation with the foster child only once a year? Yeah. This is First uh, Samuel uh, 2, 18 through 20. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying... May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. Would you read that last sentence again? Uh, the, may the, Lord the last five words. Okay. Then they would go home. Could you read that again? Then they would go home. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's the part that you've got to watch. You know, I don't think in, old time, in biblical times they made little boys differently than they do now. Um, kids still say, Mommy, Mommy, why are you going? You know, And this would be repeated every year. Okay, so we have both the joy of Hannah and also the very difficult path on which that family was called to walk. Let's, let's read um, also about the, the siblings. I have to do this, by the way, because otherwise people accuse me of making it up. It's not really in the Bible. Okay. 1 Samuel 2, 1 Samuel 2 21. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Okay. All right, so that's the situation. And also, we do know that foster parent was elderly. We know that at his death, Eli was um, 
98 years old, and some scholars feel that you know probably Samuel was around 17 at that time, which would have made him you know pushing 80 when he was placed with him. We know he was legally blind. You remember the story of how dependent Eli was on Samuel. I think it was an important part of the bonding is that Eli couldn't go anywhere without him. He couldn't see a thing. So right in the middle of the story, remember the story of Sunday school where, where Samuel hears someone calling and thinks it's Eli because Eli will get up in the middle of the night and he'll need someone to guide him. And so he goes and he says, did you call me? Says, no, no, go back to bed. Did you call me? No, no, go back to bed. And the third time, Eli says, if you hear that voice again, say, speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. He figures out what's going on. Um, he was also very, he was obese. One translator calls it portly. It was a factor in his death. So we know, you know, he's a guy with some physical challenges. And then his sons. His sons, um, the documented clergy abuse of his sons is in, second, is in 1 Samuel 2. This is a really complicated story, and we don't have time to go through it. And it's a little hard, I think, for modern people to kind of get the picture of what Eli's sons were doing. Eli's the chief priest, right? But he's an old guy. Nobody's paying attention to him. It's very clear in the book. Um, the sons are with their servants actually stealing the sacrifices before the people can sacrifice or taking the, the parts that they're not allowed to do. Now, as priests, they were given part of that sacrifice was their income. However, they were just short-cutting the circuit, you know, short-circuiting it, maybe getting it to the black market faster. I was trying to think, well, all right, how can we relate to that kind of spiritual sin? And I thought, well, what if you went to a church and you walk into the lobby and the pastor and the elders all come out with the offering plates and they want you to give right now and they reach in and they take the bills, put them in their pockets and throw the change back. You know, you would be spiritually traumatized, right? It's like, this is not what I came in here to do. This is for the Lord. There's a process. This is clearly a, a strange rip-off kind of situation. It was even worse for the Israelites because, of course, not to complete this was not to complete the sacrifice which allowed them to get forgiveness and to continue in their relationship with the Lord. So it was, in fact, as Eli tells his sons, a grievous sin. And in the second, in the second chapter, it also says that, they, that the men were having... The priests were having relationships with the temple women. It doesn't indicate whether they're coercive, but given the texts talk about the coercion around the sacrifices, I think we can assume that there's coercion. There's certainly sexual harassment, as we would term it in modern times. And obviously, they're all together in the temple. So Scott Peck says, um, you know, it's easy to explain people's illness. It's hard to explain their health. And in this case, we've got to say, how can we explain the incredible, because he is one of the few that finished well. Samuel is one of the stellar leaders of scripture, and he changes the trajectory of Israel in, entirely. Well, how, did, how does he do it coming out of this kind of trauma? I think one, of its, one key factor to remember for all of us, individually and as parents, is the importance of purpose, and that's not just for grown-ups. I see this with foster kids that have been told, you're garbage, you'll never become anything. You know, to tell them God's been planning you for thousands of years and has this wonderful destiny for you changes their sense of who they are and what they can do today. And in this case, this is a kid who nobody ever said, what are you going to be when you grow up? Because <laughs> it was really clear. He was going to be a priest. Um, every year when Hannah came to visit and she brought that little outfit, she is saying, you are the answer to the most important prayer of my life. And Eli is echoing it. You are a kid of destiny. 
And this is significant. Also, there's some physical objects, like that little outfit. It's kind of like Superman putting on the cape. It's like, this is who I am. This is what I do. He's walking along with Eli. He does all the rituals. He does all the tabernacles. There's this physical part. I think we forget as parents that kids and human beings are physical. But God doesn't forget that. Throughout Scripture, he's saying, put this rock here and remember this. Break this bread. Drink this wine. He knows we're physical and we need to drive it home. I think as parents, we need to remember, how can we do physical things that drive home the sense that we are God's? We're God's family. You're God's child. Um, And it's holding hands around the table. Maybe it's a Christmas thing that you always do with the Advent candles. Anything that's physical really makes a difference. And I know this with foster kids. I've got one one young man I met named named Eric who, um, he was at a camp and the the counselor wrote on the flyleaf of his Bible, someday you'll become a great man of God. Um, he was like seven or eight years old. He kept that Bible. And once when his mom was really yelling at him and telling him that he was nothing and she was going to throw away like his Bible and the stuff that was important to him, he carefully ripped out the flyleaf and stuffed it in his pocket. He has it to this day. And he's now um, a student at a Christian college. But it was that sense of there is something here that says, I know you have a destiny and God gave you that destiny. All right. Then there's the importance of a person who listens, and and this is where my hat's off to Eli uh, for all of his failings as a parent. He listened when it was significant to Samuel. He didn't say, go back to bed, kid. I don't need anything. He said, you know, maybe something's happening here that I need to listen to, and you need to just say, Lord, speak, for I'm here, if he calls you. And then he goes beyond that. He recognizes and supports that child's gifts. And here as parents, it's easy for us in our protective instinct to always stand behind and always protect to forget this is a developing child who will be something great in the kingdom someday. What Eli does, he knows that this child's called of God. He knows he's been spoken to. And the next morning he says, what did God say? Now, this is the part the Sunday school often cuts out. I don't know if you've noticed this. You, know, you get the whole story about Eli. You know, Did you call me? No, no, Samuel, Samuel, and it's God. Great. Oh, God was speaking. Wonderful. And they don't tell you what was it that God said. But the next morning, Eli goes, so what was the big message? And Samuel goes, he went, tell him, because it's terrible. It's all bad. It's like Eli's sons have been so sinful um, I'm gonna, I, they're they're going to be wiped out. Eli's line's going to be wiped out. They're not going to be priests anymore. Israel has been so traumatized spiritually, they're going to lose the battle. It's, it's like death, destruction, awful, awful, awful. It's your typical prophet story, you know? And the kid's looking at him going, I'm going to tell my beloved mentor this. And Eli looks at him and says, if you don't tell me, may it happen to you. I mean, that's the most severe thing we have him saying. And so Samuel tells him. And then Eli says something even more remarkable. He says, he's the Lord. Let him do what's good in his eyes. Eli could have gone into trauma at that point or suicidal thoughts himself and said, you know, I've just received a prophecy of the end of everything. My life is meaningless. I'll slip my wrists and go away. Instead, he goes on. He finishes the task he's been given of mentoring Samuel. And let me just guess that the names Hophni and Phinehas, the birth sons of Eli, are not the ones you associate with Eli. It's Samuel. If you know the name of Eli, you know the name of Samuel. You know the job he did well. You know he was a great mentor. So it, it redeems Eli's trauma as well. But it also mentors Samuel in a way that I think we need to mentor our children. Because someday Samuel is going to go toe-to-toe to king, with kings, and he's going to tell him his job is going to be to tell them stuff they don't want to hear. He's going to go to the, the people of Israel and tell them things they don't want to hear. 
And to do that, you've got to practice as a kid, looking at your beloved mentor and saying bad news, because that's what God's called you to do. Okay, these are just some quick takeaways. First of all, I really want to be careful to say respect trauma. Do not go home and traumatize your children in the hope of post-traumatic growth, um, because life will do that for you. And as we read, as Peter warns us, Satan will cooperate with life in throwing a whole bunch of things at you and your kid. So don't, don't engage trauma for yourself or your child. But don't be terrified of trauma for yourself or your child. Um, for, their, for that fear, we have James saying, the testing of your faith produces perseverance and let perseverance finish its work in you. And that's what's tough. That's where we need to stand together as a congregation, as parents, as kids, as people who love each other, because that perseverance is hard and you shouldn't try to do it alone. But it does, it does end. It's the only way that we become mature in the faith. You know, God's faith is cooperating with God's plan. As parents, and sometimes my mentors with the foster kids will think, I need to fix these kids. I need to make this happen. You know, we need to find out what God is doing and cooperate with it. And that's truly the, the, the gift of parenting. God's plan operates, and this is the really hopeful message that we have, despite flawed caregivers, and we all are, and despite dysfunctional situations. And I'll just close with this. Jeremiah 29, 11, um, a favorite verse of royal family. This is a verse that God gives to the people of Israel when they, like foster children, have been removed from their home and put in a terrible placement, been put in Babylon where they are tormented and enslaved, and where their life is chronic suffering. And this is the word he sends to the prophet. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Recently, my colleague was in the eye doctor, and the, um, and the woman who was admitting him saw the royal family shirt, and she asked about it, and she said, No way, I was at that camp. And he said, really? And she said, yeah, you guys wear a lot of purple. She says, and I don't remember a lot, but there was this verse that you guys used to say a lot, and it was about, and she said this verse, word for word, just in her, in her late 20s. Um, I know the plans I have for you. I think throughout Scripture, the great joy is how personally our God loves us. Um, and that is what we need to remind each other of, particularly when his presence seems so invisible when we are most afraid for ourselves, when we are most afraid for our children, to believe and to trust and to hang on to the God who has a plan for us that is not to harm us, but to give us hope, to give us a future, to give us Jesus. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you on this Mother's Day for your parenting, for being both mother and father to all of us, for loving us, for being present with us, Lord, we thank you that when all seems lost, it's not. We thank you for holding us close. We ask for your help because we're, we can't do this alone. We praise you for sending Jesus, who knows how hard this way is to walk, for his death that saves us, for the spirit that walks with us. For the week ahead, help us to be imperfect but clinging to you. In your name, amen.